If you'd like, you can open your Bibles or navigate on your device to Colossians in the New Testament, the book of Colossians, actually Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we're in chapter 1, we're looking at verses 15 through 23. The topic, Paul uh, uses the word firstborn to describe how Jesus reveals the invisible God to us. The title of our message, what we have here is the firstborn to communicate. (laughs) Who doesn't understand that reference? Raise your hand. Okay, well, that's that's because you're a baby. (laughs) Somebody will explain it to you later. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together. Uh, to uh, sing to you and to hear from you through your word. As always, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be here in a powerful way because this is a living word, but it's only made alive by his presence uh, showing us precious things through it and in it. You would speak to each one of us, which you are capable of doing, and I believe you're already doing, Lord, if we would just have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us. And so do everything that you desire to do, Lord. Meet our deepest needs. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It's common for churches to incorporate their city in their name. We do it. We're Calvary Chapel of Hanford, which we shorten to Calvary Hanford. In some cases, however, it would be better to not reference your city. Halfway Baptist Church is in Halfway, Missouri. Not sure halfway to where, but it it begs uh, the question. Boring United Methodist Church is in Boring, Maryland. And then this is my favorite, Little Hope Baptist Church (laughs) in Little Hope, Texas. They started out with a lot of hope. I, I can see somebody scratching things out, New Hope, and putting Little on top of it, but not, not a good deal. Some church names are just bad choices from the start. James Bond United Community Church is in Toronto. You ask people there where they go to church, they say, Bond, James Bond. (laughs) If it was a Pentecostal church, they could be shaken, not stirred. (laughs) Then there's this one, Holy City Faith Deliverance Ministries Center of Love in Brooklyn. I'm sure they're good people. Don't, I'm not making fun of the people, but that's a mouthful. And then there's this one. First Church of the Last Chance World on Fire Revival and Military Academy, <laughs> Dade City, Florida. Hopefully, they'll never open up a, uh, a thrift store. Otherwise, that'll... S- 33 local churches are mentioned in the New Testament. They're mostly described as the church of or in a certain city such as uh, Jesus when he wrote to the seven, letter, uh, seven churches in the Revelation, the church of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and whatnot. Reading through the letter to the Hebrews, you encounter what sounds like a church name. It's found in Hebrews 12, 23, where the writer says, the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Now, that's a mouthful for sure. We could shorten it to the church of the firstborn. It wasn't really the name of a local church. It's more of a description of all churches. Any church at any time throughout the history of the church and all the churches right now could all be considered the church 
of the firstborn. We're the church of the firstborn, DBA, Calvary Hanford, doing spiritual business as Calvary Hanford. And that begs the question, who is this firstborn? Well, it turns out it's Jesus. Look at our text at verses 15 and 18. It says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. As hipster pastors like to say today, we're going to unpack this word firstborn. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the firstborn creator sustains the universe for you. And number two, the firstborn conqueror secured heaven for you. Let's take a look at Jesus, the creator, in verses 15 through 17. Now, you might be the firstborn son or daughter in your family, but you're not necessarily the firstborn. I know that sounds confusing. How can the firstborn not be the firstborn? Well, let's look to the Bible, listen to how the Bible describes the two sons of the Old Testament patriarch, Joseph. Their names were Manasseh and Ephraim. In Genesis 41... Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, and the name of the second he called Ephraim. And so uh, Manasseh was the firstborn son of Joseph. But listen to what Jeremiah said, or what actually God said through Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 9. He says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Manasseh and Ephraim had been adopted by Jacob, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jacob gave his blessing to the grandsons... Ephraim and Manasseh, he chose to bless the younger Ephraim first, despite Joseph's protest that uh, Manasseh was the older. In doing so, Jacob noted that Ephraim would be greater than Manasseh. And so to answer our question, how is the son born second, the firstborn? He is when the word is used to speak of preeminence and priority, not of birth order. And it is often used that way in the Bible. Firstborn means preeminence and priority. Another example, David was the youngest of the seven living sons of Jesse when the prophet Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. They thought so little of David that he wasn't even in the lineup for Saul to pick, or Samuel rather, to pick the next king. But Samuel passed over the son born first and then each of David's older brothers and ultimately identified David as the one that God had chosen. God later says of David in the Psalms, also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So not only was David the firstborn in his family in terms of preeminence, God says he's the firstborn king. He is the preeminent king of all kings that have ever existed. And so firstborn doesn't always mean born first, and knowing that, you'll never get confused by a cult in these scriptures, which they twist to try and show that Jesus is something less than God. And so let's look at it, beginning in verse, uh, verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Colossians may have had coins in their pockets and purses. If so, this word image could have been illustrated by those coins. It was the word that described the head of the Roman ruler that was minted on the coins. It was an exact likeness that represented the ruler depicted. God is an invisible spirit and cannot be seen. In the Old Testament, when someone saw God, it was because he manifested himself in a way that was visible to them. Theologians call those appearances theophanies, appearances of God, or Christophanies, appearances of Christ, because often it is 
uh, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exact likeness who perfectly represents the invisible God. If you want to ask the question, what is God like, the answer is he's just like Jesus. And Jesus is just like him. You see and know everything you need to know about God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus once told his disciples, guys, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's nothing more to be seen in terms of character and power and grace and mercy and all of those attributes. Jesus doesn't merely reflect God. He's not simply godly or godlike. He is the exact perfect representation of God. Then it says he's firstborn over all creation. False teachers and cults twist this word to mean that Jesus was first to be created by God. But we've already seen that isn't what the word normally means. And if that isn't enough, Paul clarifies what he means when he says in verse 16, he's firstborn, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. By him is literally translated in him. It means that both the plan to create and the power to create resided in Jesus. All things means everything in time and space, including all things in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, all of creation. Jesus, therefore, is the creator. The creator of all things must have existed prior to all things and cannot himself have been created. You're either the creator or you are created. The two are mutually exclusive. And so the cults would have you believe that God created Jesus who then created everything. But you can't create everything if you are part of the everything that was created. That sounds weird, right? I think you follow the logic. The creator is separate from his creation, and that is what Paul is talking about here with Jesus. Then Paul specifically mentions that Jesus is the creator of all spiritual beings. This is important, too, with regards to the cults, because they always say that Jesus was the first created being. Less than God, he is some sort of spiritual being. Maybe an angel, maybe something else. And Paul says, no, Jesus created all the spiritual beings. And it's, uh, he cannot be reduced to one of them. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things consist. This is a much more powerful statement than you might first realize. It doesn't read, he was before all things. It says, he is before all things. In other words, he existed before all things. This is the way you would refer to God, the one who has existed eternally. It's similar to Jesus referring to himself in the Gospels by saying, I am. He existed eternally. He was taking upon himself the name of the eternal God and declaring that he had always existed. Every now and then, somebody will argue that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's not true. He always claimed to be God. And the Jewish leaders knew that, and that's why they wanted to kill him. Because he, being a man, made himself equal with God. And so this is that kind of a statement, that Jesus existed before all things. In him, all things consist means that Jesus is the person who is holding everything together. He is preserving the universe. Do you ever wonder what holds the universe together? Physicists do. They look into the atom and they conclude there must be some invisible force that holds everything together. It's not something that they can put their finger on. 
in, in a material sense. They call it the strong force. It's also referred to, not as much anymore, but I like this, nuclear glue. Now, I've used uh, gorilla glue and super glue. I hate super glue. I always get it on me. And then I think I have to go to the emergency room. I'm going to become one of those stories, you know, where they have to take a lance and they slip and cut off my finger or something like that. I hate super glue. But this, this is nuclear glue. I mean, this is some powerful stuff that they can't really find or see. And Paul is saying, yeah, I know what it is. Jesus is the nuclear glue. He holds all this together. He's the reasons all things consist to this day. Now, beyond incredible doctrinal importance of his deity, all of this is quite precious on a devotional level, if you think about it for a minute. In the next set of verses, Paul immediately discusses Jesus and his relationship to the church. So he says, here you have creation, Jesus, the creator of all things, holding all things together, and immediately your next thought is the church? Why is that? He more than implies that Jesus created all things and sustains the universe so that he can have a relationship with people, that it all exists for that sole purpose. Am I making too much of Jesus creating the universe with us in mind? I think, if anything, I'm making too little of it. I came across this quote by Dr. Hugh Ross, He's a physicist and astronomer. He says this, What several decades of research has revealed about Earth's location within the vastness of the cosmos can be summed up in this statement. The ideal place for any kind of life as we know it turns out to be a solar system like ours within a galaxy like the Milky Way, within a supercluster of galaxies like the Virgo supercluster, within a super supercluster like the Lanakaya super supercluster. In other words, we live in the only neighborhood that allows not only for physical life's existence, but also for its enduring survival. Sci-fi writers, agnostics, and atheists assume that the vastness of the universe presents greater possibilities for alien life. I mean, they say things like, just look out there. How can you think that Earth is the only place that has life? I mean, we're so small I mean, even the word small doesn't make sense compared to the cosmos. I say bring it on. Make more Hubble telescopes. Keep looking deeper and deeper. Find tons of galaxies. Because every time they do, they realize that there is no place like home. It's, it's canceling out the opportunity for more. There's too much data. The more they find, the more sure you can be that this is a unique situation. Now, people say that you're arrogant for thinking that. It's not that we're arrogant. It's that Jesus is extravagant. And that's the focus that we should have. When I look out at the stars and I think, oh, God made me for this, you know, that, 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 that's not what we're saying. We're saying that Jesus loved us so much that he said, I can't just have a, I just can't have a little backdrop like the little prince, right, on a meteor. We can't do this on a meteor. We can't do this in, a, in one solar system. I need to have galaxies behind this to show the vastness of my creative power, and then they'll understand the depth of my love. And so really, I've said this before, and, and I mean it, the universe as we know it is a backdrop, it's a stage, it's a theater 
on which the drama of redemption plays out. And that's why we know when this current age is ended, the Bible says that God is going to be done with this creation. He's going to destroy it, and there'll be the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, because this, this, doesn't, this only exists for God to save people, for him to be able to bring good news to lost sinners that he loves them. And so we're not arrogant. Jesus is extravagant, and the universe communicates how much God loves us. Now, in verses 18 through 23, we see Jesus is a conqueror who secured heaven for you. What is the church of the firstborn? Well, in one sense, it's a new creation within creation. It's something beautiful and marvelous. It's all those who have believed on Jesus by grace through faith, therefore being transformed into something the universe has never before seen, man as the dwelling place of God. Paul the Apostle says to us, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He means our individual bodies as the Spirit comes to indwell us permanently at the moment of our salvation but he also means the corporate body as we're gathered together. In a spiritual sense, he also inhabits us. And this is an absolutely unique situation, a mystery that was withheld until the New Testament time. And so Paul gets into it a little bit in verse 18. He says, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You could spend years on each of these phrases. You understand how deep this stuff is. This is some of the greatest Christology in the Bible. Paul just extolling the virtues of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's tackle this word firstborn again in this second context. When Jesus was on the earth, he raised a lot of people from the dead. But those resurrections were really restorations. Those people lived to die another day. I've always wondered how excited Lazarus really was to be raised from the dead. His sisters were happy, I'm sure, because they missed him and all of his friends. But he's four days in the grave. He was absent from that body and in a place called Hades in Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise, hanging out with the patriarchs, probably looking for his favorite Bible character. Who are you going to look for in heaven? I kind of like Enoch. Cool guy, first guy to be raptured. Anyway, that's a stupid aside. Take that back. We can edit that later. But uh, <laughs> so Lazarus is there hanging out. Uh, Carmen used to have a song. Remember Carmen? Who, remember, who remembers the, the Christian artist Carmen? He's a guy, by the way. And uh, he used to have a song where Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, you know, and stuff. So if you're Lazarus, you're, you're hanging out with these guys, doing whatever you do in paradise. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears. You're, you're, you're grooving. Shows you how old I am. You're grooving. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Jesus calls you out of the grave and, and you come to life. I guess that's fun. And then you find out that the Jewish religious leaders want to kill you because you've been raised to life and that's evidence that Jesus is who he said he was and so they got to get rid of the evidence and that happens to be you. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead in a new resurrection glorified eternal body that could uh, handle heaven. He's the firstborn in that sense. He conquered death and hell for us in his resurrection. He said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
I have the keys of Hades and death. See them? I've got them. I rose from the dead, and now I have the keys, meaning that Hades and death have been defeated. The devil, sin, all these terrible things, they're defeated by Jesus Christ. He hasn't fully realized his victory yet. That's coming. But he has conquered all of those, and he did it for you. He created a universe. He put man in it. We sinned, and God came up with a plan to redeem us and to restore us, and it involved Jesus coming and dying, rising from the dead, and now he says, I can give you these keys in the sense that I can open up eternal life to you. Multitudes will follow the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All whom he has redeemed and who have been forgiven will be raised incorruptible as well. The dead in Christ will rise first. Living believers will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Later on, there will follow the resurrection of all the other believers from all other ages and eras until the Lord is left with this group of people who are absolutely wonderful. It's in that very amazing sense that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning of this new creation, the church. It's a mystery, but it's been revealed to us. Our relationship to Jesus, we learn here, is like that of a head to its body. Jesus is in heaven, we're on the earth, but if we acknowledge him as the head and follow his leading and guiding, then we collectively act upon the earth exactly as Jesus would act if he were here. What would Jesus do? He would do what we're doing right now and what all the churches are doing. We may not be doing it perfectly. We may be missing some things. Obviously, we're human, but... Jesus is doing something on the earth through his body. Our friend, Pastor Don McClure, uses as an email signature, Jesus has come and never left. Sure, he ascended into heaven, but uh, he has never left because he left us, his body, on the earth to continue the work. He fills us with his spirit to accomplish it. Is the church failing? Jesus said the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. I think we're succeeding. We're just succeeding in a way that is not always uh, open to us. It doesn't always make sense to us because we think success is always in strength, but the Lord says, I'm made strong in your weakness. But however he's doing it all over the world, for centuries now, the church has been making progress. We need to make more progress, but we are the body of Christ and the world is being altered and changed by what we're doing. He says that in all things he may have preeminence. The word means that Jesus became something he was not previously. He was God for eternity, and in his death and resurrection, he became the head of the body, the church. The word preeminence is only found here in all the New Testament. It means to have first place, to be first. With a nod to Abbott and Costello, who is not on first? Jesus is on first. And that's a great devotion to take with you later and think, okay, Lord, if you're on first, what, let me look at my own life and see the different compartments that I think about. Are you really first in my life? Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. What God pleased was that in him, referring to Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And that refers to all of his divine attributes. The word dwell means to be at home permanently. Paul's sweeping statement does not allow for any other interpretation than this one. In Jesus Christ, the sum total of divine attributes resides 
permanently. Or in short, Jesus Christ, the human being, is at once fully God. Jesus is God and man at the same time. Verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Look to the end of the verse first. It was through the blood of the cross that Jesus was able to reconcile and make peace. That goes back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, God discussed what was necessary for them and their descendants to be reconciled. Blood had to be shed. And by blood, we simply mean something or someone needed to die. There's nothing uh, other than it was his blood. There, there's nothing unusual about the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have special radioactive properties or anything like that. Every now and then you'll read an article where somebody has decided that, that Jesus' blood is different than the blood of regular human beings, and actually that takes away from his humanity and his deity. It simply means somebody has to die. In, in the garden, you remember, it was, it was animals. God said, here, I'm going to show you what your sin costs and how to overcome sin. I have to slay some animals now to provide skins to cover you. We assume they were lambs because that's what Cain and, uh, or Abel rather started to sacrifice right after that. That's what his mom and dad taught him in the garden. But not just any death. No mere man could die for the sins of the human race. First of all, no mere man could live a life to God's perfect standards. No one could uh, satisfy God's justice. And second of all, even if one could do that, he would only be able to die for himself and not for anyone else. Only God in human flesh could reconcile the human race with God. Paul tells us that reconciliation applies to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The entire creation was thrown into turmoil when Adam and Eve sinned. The entire creation is reconciled by Jesus in the sense that by his sacrifice on the cross, God is able to fulfill his stated plans for the universe. He's able to redeem and restore what was lost. Notice that peace is a result of reconciliation with God. In one sense, it's foolish to talk about lasting political peace. History is moving towards the great tribulation. We must factor in prophecy when developing our worldview. doesn't mean we should be warmongers or not try for peace or not try to sit down in the Middle East and make peace. That, that's not what I'm saying. It means that we should be intelligent and understand that ultimately peace is only going to come when Jesus comes and enforces it. The history of mankind is the history of conflict and war. We've all, how many wars have we fought that were the war to end all wars? Uh, we keep doing it. You think, why do people have to fight? Uh, okay, here's some names. Stalin, Hitler, uh, Mao Zedong, uh, you know, if there weren't goofballs like that, maybe we wouldn't have to. World War this, World War that. It, people can't find peace because peace ultimately must be found in peace with God. And he has made reconciliation with mankind. We need to come to him. And one day he will enforce that peace. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. Paul's believing, uh, or addressing rather, believers in the church. Before they met Jesus, they were alienated from God. They were foreigners or strangers. All of us in our natural birth are born earthly, not heavenly. We're citizens of a fallen planet, descendants of a fallen race, aliens when it comes to citizenship in heaven. Our hostility is revealed both in our mind and by our wicked works. 
By our mind is meant the fact that we think selfish, evil thoughts. By our wicked works is meant the fact that we act selfishly and for our own benefit. Yet now he has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death. It's the only possible solution that God would come and die for our sins and rise from the dead. And it's been accomplished by Jesus Christ because it pleased God. This is interesting. This is a great meditation. God has never been your enemy. God has never been the enemy of the human race. He is for us, not against us. He's been at work in eternity and in history to reconcile you so that you may be at peace with him. There are five great Bible words that describe what God pleased for you. In justification, you stand before God guilty and condemned, but God pleased to declare you righteous. In redemption... You stand before God as a slave, but God pleased to grant you freedom. In forgiveness, you stand before God as a debtor, but God pleased to pay your debt and forgive you. In reconciliation, you stand before God an enemy, but God pleased to make peace with you. And in adoption, you stand before God a stranger, but God pleased to make you a son. When you're justified, when God declares you righteous by grace through faith, You're redeemed and forgiven and reconciled and adopted. And this is all what God has done for you. This is the plan of salvation. God is not your enemy. He is your friend. One day all of this will be fully, finally realized in heaven. In fact, and I like this in verse 22, Jesus will personally present you in heaven. It says in verse 22, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The ultimate purpose of God the Father, what he pleased was for his son to one day present you before him in heaven, to come and rescue you and bring you to heaven and show you to the Father. The word present means to stand beside. The Lord Jesus Christ will stand beside you and present you to his Father. The only thing I could think of that was similar is maybe bringing home your fiancé to meet your parents, except without any of the drama or doubt as to what they might think of your choice. Uh, Some of you, that was a harrowing experience. And, uh, you know, in my my family, no one was ever good enough for me. And so those were rough times, you know. Pam will attest to that afterwards. (laughs) The Father can't wait to meet you in heaven. Jesus bringing you along. Say, look, look at Gene. Remember Gene? Remember what a loser Gene was? Look at what's happened. Look at what he got saved. You remember when he got saved and how that happened? And, and the Lord, in some sense, were to take this literally, in some sense is going to present believers, each of us individually, before his Father. How will you look at that time? You'll be holy. Inwardly, internally, it will be perfect. No sin, no intrusive thoughts, no fears, no doubts, no nothing that plagues you so much now. You'll be blameless. It can mean without blemish. Outwardly, externally, you'll be perfect. You'll have been raised from the dead in a glorified body or raptured off of the earth in one. We don't know a lot about the glorified body. Uh, We see Jesus in his, and uh, we assume some things will be similar. Uh, I don't know what an ideal human form looks like, you know, whether it's, you know, muscle-bound or lean uh, or what age you'll be, who knows. I do know that everybody will be recognized immediately. I know that because when uh, Peter and the boys were up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Moses and Elijah appeared to him, and they knew it was Moses and Elijah, and I don't think they had name tags on. You know, you don't, they, they weren't wearing letterman jackets that said E-team, Elijah, or anything like that. I mean, so somehow Peter was able to look at those guys and say, oh, that's Moses and Elijah. And so we will be recognized and recognizable. But uh, it's fantastic. You'll also be above reproach. Upwardly, eternally, though you will still have free will, there will be no possibility of future sin or selfishness. Don't ask me how that's possible. It is. You will enjoy perfect, unbroken fellowship and communion with God and with every other saved individual. And so that's how Jesus is going to present you. And then in verse 23, it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, read casually, this seems to undercut everything else he said, that by simple disobedience, you can fall away from the Lord. But if you read it carefully, it actually reinforces your security in Jesus Christ, underlines the truth that he has conquered all these things for you. Uh, what Paul is saying, essentially, is that... Uh, well, I'll tell you, he's using an analogy that we don't immediately see, but the Colossians would have. Colossae was a region known for severe and devastating earthquakes that would level the buildings, reducing them to rubble. Think Kolinga, 1983. That was, a, uh, that was Colossians, uh, Colossae, rather. So Paul used the analogy of a building that could not be destroyed by an earthquake. So this verse is describing the church as a building. The words grounded, steadfast, and moved away are all architectural terms. Grounded refers to the foundation of a structure. Steadfast refers to the structure itself. Moved away can be rendered shifting or shaken. And so the analogy is of a house built on a solid foundation that would endure the very worst earthquake. So Paul's saying, hey, you're in this house, and uh, it, it will endure. The false teachers were coming along and they were saying, we have some additions to the house. You're not going to endure unless you build a second story or add to the garage or get a basement going with these false teachings. And that is not true. And so Paul was letting them know not that they were insecure or that their momentary lapses of obedience would throw them out of the house, but that they were in the safest, most secure place on earth. They were in post-Kolinga, which can, uh, was built to withstand earthquakes. Only he's saying you're, you're delivered to withstand any spiritual earthquake that might come along. The hope of the gospel is the message of eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The method God had determined to communicate the gospel is that it be preached to every creature under heaven. This doesn't mean it had already been preached to every creature, obviously not, only that preaching is God's way of getting the message out to the world. While we're on this subject, people wonder and they worry. They think, well, what about people who have never heard? We say there's no one who has never heard because creation declares the glory of God. Day unto day, it utters his glory. And so it's not a perfect knowledge of God, but God will work with somebody who sees him in creation. Creation and conscience, God is speaking to men always. In Acts chapter 17, one of my favorite scriptures, 
Paul explains to the Greek philosophers, God spread people all over the planet. He said, for the express purpose, they would seek after him and find him. We look at things always backwards and different. We think, oh, that person out there who doesn't have mass communication, we need to get them the gospel. Yes, that's true. But, but God says, I know they're there. I put them there. I put them there so they would seek me and find me. And so the church is doing its work and God is doing his work. Preaching is God's way of getting the message out to the world. That's all we need to worry about is doing our part. The simple gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached was like a house that was built on a rock-solid foundation, couldn't be shaken, doesn't need any additions or second stories or basements. All we need to do is continue in our faith in the doctrine of the apostles, that which we have heard and received when we were saved. Whatever city name attaches to your local church, you're safe and secure in the church of the firstborn because Jesus conquered sin and death to give you eternal life. Let's pray.